0: You're listening to Everyday Saints podcast from the Melbourne Anglican. I'm your host, Jananne Taylor. Our aim is to feature the stories of people from different backgrounds in Melbourne and beyond. These stories might make us laugh, they might make us cry, but our hope is that hearing a diverse range of stories will bring us closer together and better equip us to care for one another. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy. Today's guest is the Reverend Natalie Dixon-Monu, a minister in the Uniting Church of Australia, and coordinator of the award-winning Borandara Community Outreach, or BCO as it is fondly called. BCO helps people who are living with a mental health condition or who are socially isolated to live with dignity in the community. I've had the pleasure of speaking with Natalie on a number of occasions and I can truly describe what she does as a labour of love. Her lens on the world is very much an inquiry into what matters and how to lead a good life. But things were by no means easy for Natalie, from being a teenage rebel who lost sight of God, to a minister who has helped church make sense for many who might feel detached from it, hers is a story I hope you'll find as fascinating as I have. And a word of warning, this episode canvasses family violence and self-harm, as well as sexual abuse, among other traumas. If you need to speak with someone, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thanks for talking to me today, Natalie. Tell me a bit about yourself, what you like to do and what your interests are.
1: I grew up in Tasmania, but I've sort of lived in Melbourne since I uh, moved here in my early twenties when I came here to do my theological training. I don't have a lot of time outside of family life and my ministry here. So what I do is I go, why don't we have a ukulele group here? Well, why don't we have a choir as one of our activities? So I like to play ukulele. Um, I like to sing. I like to do a a lot of sort of artistic expressive stuff. So I kind of run things here and then participate in them. (laughs) Um, Otherwise, I'd never get to do any of it outside of uh, in the busyness of life. I also like to read when I can, which is usually on holidays, and love a bit of nature, love to go, uh, particularly the beach in winter if I can get there. That's just uh, refuels me, seems to um, do something to my soul.
0: Tell me a bit about your upbringing.
1: Yeah, so I grew, grew up in Tassie and in, it's a, A funny thing to say, in a Christian family, but a Christian family of which domestic violence was present. So it was a really weird mix of having been brought up reading the Bible and having a strong sense of the presence of God, but also knowing the presence of, I don't want to say evil, but I mean the presence of a bad spirit that was wanting to suffocate life. And unfortunately, my father, for whatever reason, was a very controlling man. But we grew up in a Pentecostal church that fueled that control because it had this weird idea that men were the spiritual head of the house and mum and us were all meant to be submissive to his power. And so it was mostly an emotional abuse, but there were there was physical um, violence in it as well. Mm. And, and so that was, it's funny when I talk about it because it seems like I'm telling a story of somebody I once knew because it just seems so foreign to the life I have now. Um, but if I th- think about the trauma of that, it had a huge impact on, um, as a teenager, I really struggled. So I started struggling at school, I was wagging. Because I was deeply unhappy, I started to uh, smoke marijuana and drink alcohol. I actually stole money from the church. So my granddad used to um, <laughs> collect the collection plate and sort the money out and I used to help him and then help myself. So for I did that for a couple of years and stole money and, like I said, would buy marijuana and alcohol. Shoplifting, I got caught doing that, getting in trouble at school. I was a pretty angry and pretty sad teenager. Mm. And in that context, in the school, nobody really, I remember being sent to the school psychologist and she asked me why I hated school. Nobody ever asked me, tell me what's going on or what's happening at home. You know, it was an era where our neighbours would hear us screaming and they told my granddad and granddad's response was, oh, well, you know, she's made her bed. She's got to lie in it. Like nobody ever, the church knew their intervention was to blame my mother. She must have done something to cause this. And I remember them coming one day when dad went, was really bad, went right off, and they came down and basically told us kids we had to get ready for school. They dropped us off at school and told us we were not to tell anybody and that basically my mother was the cause of it all. So I remember sitting. That was in kinder, and I remember sitting on the reading mat and listening to the story being read, thinking, you know, nobody has any idea of what's going on in my home. That's and it was, you know, where did she go? There wasn't. It wasn't an era like now where you rang up domestic violence services. It was very kind of hidden. And my dad was teaching religious education in primary schools.
0: Did did that make you, in a sense, also rebel against the thought of of Christianity?
1: I could see the falseness of it, and I could see the falseness in the Pentecostal church of the leaders up the front. And I just had a gut feeling because of my experience early on of having a strong sense of the presence of God. I just knew that what they were preaching wasn't right. And so it forced me to read my Bible. And because I went to the church services so that I could get the money, <laughs> you know, and these services went for hours and hours and it was just a lot of manipulation and a lot of lying and so I read my bible because I thought there's something about this is not right so it actually I I never stopped believing but I did lose sight of where God was in amongst all of that but I I never doubted that God existed or that God was there. I just struggled to find God in amongst it all. And so I used to get in a lot of trouble uh, flack for wearing trousers because, of course, women had to wear skirts. And so what I did was I went home and I typed up a whole bunch of quotes from the Bible, like, you know, God does not look as um, humanity does. He does not look at the heart, but at the outward appearance, but looks at the heart and, you know, beauty is fleeting and um but the Mm. you know a woman who fears the lord is to be praised and then i think i found a line from line from thessalonians that said you live a good life and mind your own business and i (laughs) had a whole page of all these quotes and anytime the pastors or the male elders of the church would comment on me wearing trousers i'd just um hand it to them what what then happened was my father had a dramatic change of heart when i was 15. Mm. And I suppose it came through a slow process and my brother was getting in trouble. We were ordered by the family courts to go to family counselling and in that time he was in a room where he was finally confronted with his behaviour in a way that he could just sort of run away from. And I think a lot of things just came together and he he called a family meeting and said, I'm really sorry, will you ever forgive me and I want to stop. And he did. From that moment on, he stopped. I'd, I've never seen such wow. a dramatic transformation of heart. But, of course, I didn't quite know what to do with that and my brother didn't quite know what to do with that. So that night we went off and we took um, some daytura, which is like a hallucinogenic flower and it's quite dangerous and you can't actually kill yourself on it. And, um, we ended up in hospital that night and had my stomach pumped and... I remember sitting in the hospital thinking, you know, all this time I'd kind of been doing all of this stuff in some ways just to get at my dad to destroy his image of the perfect Christian man. Um, and also because I was unhappy. And I think I realized I don't want I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm just could have could have died. I'm just hurting myself. And now that he's saying, sorry, what's the I just, I just didn't have the motivation to be, I didn't want to do it anymore. So I, um, so I stopped. But of course, stopping meant I had to give up all of my friends. I stopped going to all the parties. I copped a lot of flack, a lot of flack for that. And then I started to read my Bible more and more. And I only had my mum and my mum was an incredible support in that time. And I started to discover an incredible story about a father who did love me. And I just had a real, in a sense, a reawakening of that faith that had been there when I was young and that sense of God's presence. And and I chose to do a um, baptism. Mm-hmm. And for me that was a real sense of being able to wipe the slate clean. I felt, you know, I'd stolen money, I'd done a whole lot of bad stuff and it was a real opportunity to say I can start again. And that incredible gift of grace, that means you don't have to walk around with that burden of feeling like you're in debt all the time and got to make up for things that you've done. Um, And that was an absolute um, gift for me. Yeah. How did
0: social justice become a focus?
1: Well, when we were growing up, we also had a lot of people, uh, different people live with us. And then When I was about, we had people who had mental, struggling with their mental health. We had one guy who was an alcoholic stay with us for a while. My mum had always been somebody who cared for people who often were judged by others. So I I think I kind of always grew up with that sense. I think my experience as a teenager where I was written off by a lot of people and um, made me understand from the inside what it was like to be judged and people not understand why you know why you might use drugs or why you might do what you do and then we started to be part of the home um, anglicare home sharer program where we had some young people come and live with us who struggled to be part of their families just always sort of had that sense of a heart for people who are on the edge and i think because i knew what it was like to be on the edge and to be marginalized and judged. So I I can't pinpoint why, but that just seems to be always why. And then when I read the text, the scriptures, that's what I saw in Jesus' story, that that's that's just a natural expression of our faith. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he loved people who were unlovable. He touched people that were meant to be untouchable. And he included women, you know, that was like a radical thing for me. And then um, we left the Pentecostal church when I was about 16 and my parents ended up going to the Anglican church and I ended up in the Uniting church. And the Uniting church I joined had a really strong social justice uh, expression of faith. And that kind of, in a sense, I think just fostered fostered that in me. And then when I was about about 20, there, it was around that time where i a lot of people were sort of discerning and saying to me, you know, what about ministry? I'd, I worked as a youth worker in the church and I was doing a lot of uh, worship leadership and some preaching and people kept on sort of poking me and saying, have you thought about ministry? And of course, it's mm-hmm. the last thing on my mind, I originally was going to be a social worker. Okay. So that was sort of in a sense, you know, an expression of where I was going. I wanted to do social work. But something about it didn't quite fit. So I was doing my arts degree and I just, it was kind of right, but it wasn't the 100% right fit and I couldn't figure that out. And then people were saying to me, you know, what about ministry? And I'm like, ah, I I had a strong sense of being called to ministry but not within the church and I didn't really understand this. Mm. And then I went to a presbytery meeting and somebody got up and presented about the Ministry of Deacon in the Uniting Church, which is an ordained permanent um, ministry, and that it was like somebody had written a job description that just fitted. It. it was just this fit. So very unwillingly, I um, put my hand up, and that's how I ended up ordained in <laughs> United Church. So I think I was well ordained by the time I was, I think twenty-seven or something. So oh unwillingly, goodness. but yeah. you you obviously came around to it. Very unwillingly and, and partly because I felt like I'd only just got my life back, like just 20 and I just felt like I'd found my voice, you know, because there was other pe- men in the community who had been quite abusive, other men in my extended family who had been quite abusive, who I stood up against. So I was disinherited and, you know, that was a hard process but it was a process where I learnt how to find my voice and the courage Mm. so uh, yeah candidating was a bit like you know I've just got my life and now you want it (laughs) like I really just felt like I'd found myself and then God's saying okay now I want that one (laughs) so I I was very unwilling and I was young you know who in their right mind at the age of 21 would candidate and you know want to be a minister when you're single and just everything about it felt wrong but annoyingly the church unanimously voted me in at every level and so I felt like I I couldn't uh say no really and of course you know it's that thing whoever wants to gain their life must lose it you know and it was that incredible sense of Giving up so much, I had to move to Melbourne. Oh my gosh! My first placement was at Pentridge Prison in Chaplaincy in the protective, in protection with the highest-ranking sex offenders in Victoria. <laughs> I did it for eighteen months. Um, Potentially, that would be harrowing. It, I think it it was a it wasn't i wouldn't have said it was harrowing um and maybe that's because that stuff wasn't new to me you know so so i wasn't surprised because i knew people like this i'd met people like this before so it wasn't it might have been harrowing for someone who came from a life where they'd never experienced any kind of violence or abuse or knew that these things were in the world but for me that it was normal in that sense that there I knew that there were people like this in the world one of one of the most amazing things I remember there was meeting a really high profile sex offender who had committed sex offenses against many women Mm. and I remember setting up for doing the church service and he came over to me and he said um I don't believe in the trinity and I said okay. Yeah. I said, it's, you know, and we talked a little bit about how it's just an image of helping us to try and understand God, the bigness of who God is and somehow trying to put a name around how we might talk about God. And he said, oh no, it's not so much that it's, I just don't um, believe three beings can be one. And then he said, but I believe that two can be. So of course I looked up at him and I said, what, you mean by that and he said I believe two beings can be in one because I have it in myself and then he just got up and walked away and what he said was so true because there were days where I would meet the sex offender and then there were days where I would meet him mm-hmm. and on one of those days where I met him the man he said I've got something to show you and he went back to his cell and bought out the most beautiful pottery, I had ever seen. And as he was holding them in his hands and showing them to me, I was looking at his hands and thinking, those hands that had created such terrible destruction in so many people's lives, not just the women, but the ripple effect of that violence is enormous. And yet those hands can create this beauty. And, you know, it's an awareness of the complexity of humanity that not even the most evilest of people are all evil. And it's very easy for us to call them evil and monsters and make them out to be monsters, but they're not. They're actually just human. And, And what scares us about them is that they show us our own potential for evil. That's why we get frightened by them. Because we have within ourselves that struggle between those two sides we have the capacity for great evil and great good, and we make choices every day about which direction we will go and I think that's what scares us about people like that is um you know and this guy grew up in absolute abject poverty and terrible life yeah it's, so when you actually meet people face to face you meet you meet the human as well it sounds like
0: your work there certainly informed quite a lot of, of your ministry, your, your, the ministry that was to come as well. Would you say that?
1: Yes. So then I, my first, once I was ordained, my first placement was uh, three years as a chaplain at the juvenile prison in Parkville. Um, so I ended up there. That was kind of an incredible full circle because here I was, you know, that that struggling 14-year-old doing drugs and all the naughty stuff. And I end up, in ministry with 14 year olds <laughs> so, you know 14 to 21 year olds they were yeah so I I never used to tell them unless it was necessary but sometimes I'd you know they'd often say oh what the hell would you know you're just a good little Christian and I say wow
0: <laughs> in a sense did you find that you were able to draw on, on on your younger self and those ideas and the things that used to go through your own head to kind of help mm-hmm. help with your work there with them
1: Yes, and it was about that thing of a lot of these kids got labelled as bad, but they were sad, really mm. sad. And and I, there was one kid one day who he was telling me his story. He was a raging heroin addict and so he'd do crime to get money to, to fuel his heroin addiction. And so then he's labelled as this big drug addict and, you know, burglar and all this stuff. But then he's sitting there and he's telling me at the age of 10 he watched his brother drown. At the age of um, 12, his dad had a heart attack. At the age of 13, his mum died. Then he went to live with his grandparents and then his grandfather died. You know, all within like a six-year time frame. And then I just said to him, gosh, that's, that's just so much to manage and cope with. And he just shrugged his shoulders and he says, I guess that's why I'm a heroin addict. And he's right. He was just trying to numb the pain. You
0: eventually ended up at Burundara Community Outreach and have been there for, I think it's a total of 16 years. But what was it that attracted you to the role at BCO?
1: After the three years of being there, um, it was around that time where heroin was really big and uh, now amphetamines are the kind of main poison at the moment but back then it was heroin and we were having a lot of deaths and I did a lot of funerals of those kids and I think after three years of doing that I found that really quite heartbreaking I found that you know it's my first placement i was still quite young I was only what 20 I started when I was 27 or 28 yeah I hurt myself on a camp and knocked myself unconscious and broke my sternum and something and that caused me to to sit have a moment to sit and ponder and and then I got the offer, the call to BCO and I decided, yeah, discerned that, yes, I should come here. Now, I had also volunteered at BCO originally. So when I originally came to Melbourne, I lived in Kew and then I got invited by the minister who was running BCO to come to the monthly church service and I was really struggling to find a faith community to connect with here. You know, I'd left Tassie, Melbourne was a big city, I hadn't travelled a lot at all in my life um, at that stage, so I was lost. So she invited me to the monthly church service and it was just the most profound experience to worship with people who were just so raw about the struggles of life and so real about their faith in amongst it all. And they cared for me. These people who were living in rooming houses and had mental illnesses and a whole lot of stuff going on for them uh, became the community who befriended me. <laughs> so it was really, um, and welcomed me in, and then would say hello to me down the street. And, and then I used to go and pick people up to come to the church service. And so I'd already had a little bit of experience of the community here and just loved, was attracted to the realness of it you know I hate I hate doing church so often we just do church and we're not it's a liturgy that's not real in the sense that it's a lot of words but not a lot of connection of those words to people's lives or the words take up too much space and there's not enough space for people to be able to find God or express their uh, lament or their agony you know um so anyway, so when they handed out a call, I kind of went, yeah, that's a good fit.
0: So tell me how the work has evolved there at BCO. Yes.
1: Um. So originally when BCO was set up, it started at the time where there really wasn't a lot of the mental health services. So at that time, a lot of those drop-in centres started at the same time as this ministry. And so it was set up really as like a community chaplaincy position It didn't have really anything in-house other than the monthly church service. And that church service came out of the people in the rooming houses saying they wanted church. They wanted to have a church that could be their church because they didn't feel that they could connect in with the churches. They felt too judged or it was too wordy or... Um, and so it was like a chaplaincy position where it was outreach. She'd visit the rooming houses and then also connected in with the local services that that had drop-in. So at that point the Q neighborhood House was a main player and also Mosaic. So those guys were running until about 2014. It was still a similar thing. So um, I was kind of visiting those places and doing outreach and whatever, but then... Um, the shift in the mental health service meant that those places closed down. Mm. And so then people started to say to me, well, you know, now I've got nowhere to do art or now I've got nowhere to do band or, you know, there's nowhere to just hang out and have a coffee, can't drop in anymore. So just gradually from 2014, we've just sort of picked up group after group. So we started with an art group and then we started with some music stuff. And, And so over that transition time, we we now run a whole variety of groups um, on three days a week, and we also have community lunches three days a week. Just prior to the pandemic, we were doing about 500 meals a month, so about 100, say 125 meals a week. With our lunch, we had one lunch a week, and we used to have some outing stuff and so on. Um, when the pandemic hit, it was like, well, we can't run our groups. And people were ringing up in an absolute panic. They were going to the shops and there was nothing to buy. And when you're low, when you're an individual, um, you only buy one piece of chicken. You don't buy a whole thing of chicken. And you only buy one or two toilet rolls, not a pack of 48. And so they were going there and the only toilet rolls that were there were a 48 pack. Um, and there was no one piece of chicken and there was no, and um people were just panicked, like it just, the anxiety levels went through the roof. And so I said, right, um, I think the best way, we could have just close down and shut house. We could have said, okay, well, we can't do anything. And I said, no, I think we need to support people through providing them with food, good nutritious access to food. That means they don't have to um, go to the shops and panic means they're not going to expose themselves to the virus of which many of them are very vulnerable to because of their underlying health conditions and so we started to cook and we went up to cooking an average somewhere between 600 and 800 meals a week (laughs) so we pivoted enormously and one of the women who was a volunteer here, she was working for the council and that program shut down. So she said, well, they're still going to pay me, so I'm going to come here and volunteer. And she looked at me and she said, um, she's not got any faith background or anything, and she just said, um, well, how are you going to fund this? And I said, don't worry, it'll it'll come if it's right. It, the, the funds will come. I'm just stepping out in faith here and she's looking at me like you're a lunatic. <laughs> Um, And I just had that really weird moment of going, oh, my gosh, this is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Like I really felt like the people around me were like the disciples saying, we've got way too many people here. We don't have the resources to feed them. Just send them away. Send them to somewhere else. They're going to have to go and feed themselves. And I was like, no, it's our responsibility to feed them. These people are our people. And the money just rolled in. It was just, and I think some of it was because a lot of the other big agencies just couldn't pivot, and they really paired their services back. And so people were wanting to donate stuff because their businesses were closing down and there was no nowhere to donate to. So we scored a whole lot of a whole lot of stuff. and then we just used to make people book in, so we didn't have too many people here at a time, and they'd come once a week, we'd give them seven meals of um. A really good hearty cooked meal and then stuff for their lunches and breakfasts and whatever and um and then people could stay at home and then they'd come here and then we'd bring them during the week and see how they're traveling have a chat with them sometimes when they came here we'd put music on outside and make people have a bit of a dance and a boogie (laughs) and sit out in the sun for a cuppa you know all socially distanced and masked and one one neighbor rang the police because she told them we were having a bit of a rave party or something and the police even came and danced with us it was great (laughs) so yeah so then when the pandemic sort of came to an end we we and the other thing that happened here was we got a lot of homeless people housed in the hotels down just down the road from us Mm. and so suddenly we had people uh homeless people from the city in the hotels and they didn't have cooking facilities so we were supporting them as well. So we had a whole bunch of extra people that we were supporting. So we were kind of well and truly punched above our weight. <laughs> For me, hospitality is really important. And I, th- and I see that in the scriptures. And mm. I always say to people, what we do here is the food, yes, the food is important and, it, and people are hungry, but it's actually how you serve the food that's most important and that people love the most. It's the hospitality it's the breaking bread together. That's actually what we do here. So it might the, the bread might be lasagna, but we're having it together. <laughs> and and the mutuality, like I, I say to all of our volunteers here, that it's about mutuality. So we don't have an us and them model. Uh, we really talk about creating pu- community with people. And with means they have things to offer us and we have things to offer them. And it, and um, I don't know if you know about um, Sam Wells, uh, Reverend Dr. Sam Wells. He writes uh, really good stuff around this model. One of the things he talks about in one of his books, um, For Good, which he wrote with two other, other people, um, they talk about this really great framework of um, assets and deficits. And he talks about, you know, often the welfare stuff is based on deficits. So you don't have food, so I'll give you food, or you don't have a house, so I'll house you. And But he says that the church really should be about the assets, and assets are things like joy and hope and love and compassion and creativity. And, and um, I really loved that framework because I thought, oh, that's what we do here, because I don't like the deficits model. And also because uh, for a lot of my people here, the deficits never go away. I can't fix often their homelessness or I can't fix their drug addiction or their mental health. It's not fixable. There is some stuff I can fix and that's great. But what we really focus on is the asset stuff. What I can do, though, is, is uh, give them compassion and mm-hmm. and create some moments of joy in amongst all of that. Um, And we have a lot of fun here, a lot of fun. In fact, at the moment, my choir, we're doing a little pantomime of Little Red Riding Hood that we will just perform to the community at the end of this month. And it's just hysterical. And So um, apart from
0: drawing, as you said, inspiration um, from the book that you mentioned, are there any other models of service or service models that you've kind of drawn from over the years?
1: I, I, I did um, – when I was in Tasmania for that six years, I mm-hmm. just I was a bit bored. I was doing part-time work for the church, mm-hmm. uh, running um, – doing youth ministry, running camps, and I was helping doing a bit of supply. But I had a little bit of time on my hands. I thought, oh, I'll do some continuing education. So I enrolled myself in a Master's of Social Work. And I, I had no intention of being a social worker, but I, I – just thought a good, you know, let's stretch my brain a bit about models of care and so on. And, oh, my gosh, I just, you know, I walked away going, oh, thank God I'm a minister and not a social worker. <laughs> um, you know, neoliberalism has destroyed the care industry. It has turned it into an industry that blames people. So we blame individuals. That's what neoliberalism does. It says you as an individual have the power and agency to make choices and you can make any choice about how you want your life to turn out. There's no understanding of or it's all blame. So if you're unemployed, it's your fault and Mm. we should punish you for that. Well, hang on, what about an economy that doesn't have enough jobs? Oh, no, 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 you're unemployed, it's your fault, there's jobs there, if you want one you can go and get it, you're just too damn lazy. That's what neoliberalism has done and it's and in the care industry it's created this, um, you know, KPIs and people have to, you know, some social workers in hospital have to account for every 10 minutes what they've done, mm, you know, yeah. And then, and then what starts to happen is, and then part of that kind of neoliberal stuff is this, this risk discourse has crept in. So everything's about risk. What risk does this person pose to me? And so when we engage with people, we start, the service industry started to engage with people through a risk framework. So, mm. so the question isn't what does this person need or what are their needs? It's what risks do they pose to us? and what risks might potentially happen. Mm. And then the possible future risks frame all of the care rather than the current immediate need. And it's terrible. Mm. Just And it's risk is actually not about safety. It's often about fear. Fear. What does this, you know? And so I see people being scared of people and I'm like, what the heck? You know, and so it's, it's destroyed how workers um see people they no longer see people they see a label and they see risk Mm -hmm. Um, and it's really sad breaks my heart and then and then these workers are caught up in this neoliberal system where they have to justify everything they do they're already allocated certain things that they're allowed to do they can't no longer does a, a mental health worker able to take someone out and sit and have a coffee with them You know, have those chats where people, you know, just need that human connection. That's what creates wellness for people. So I can't say that I look around now and see any models that I would want anything to do with. And in fact, a lot of a lot of social workers and a lot of people from the mental health services always come here and say, "Oh, I love this place because it just." it feels friendly and it feels loving and it feels, and I, I had one guy um, actually who was homeless here for a while, Bo, and we were feeding him and then he disappeared for about three weeks and he came back, back and I said, where have you been? And he said, oh, I've moved back to the city now, I'm homeless in there. And I said, look, it's a 5K rule now, you might need to be a little bit careful, you really should be accessing the food services in the city. And he said, I have been. And he said, "But I can tell you now, their food's nothing like your food. Yes. He said, "Your and and the word to use wasn't that the food tasted better. He said, Your food is made with love, which I thought was very mm. interesting. Mm. Um, and in the same way that the woman who came here to our emergency relief, she hadn't eaten for three days, escaped domestic violence. she's um from a foreign country, has no family and friends here, and we, gave her food. We sat her down. She cried for three hours. We tag-teamed volunteers and myself looking after her, having cups of tea. And when she left, that day the domestic violence services had said they'd finished with her and they couldn't help her anymore. They closed her case and she was feeling like, you know, where who Not do I turn it. to? So she came here and when she left she sent me a text message and she didn't say, um, thank you for the food, She said, thank you for making me feel no longer alone in the world. And that's the the pity, the humanity has gone out of the the social services now. And it's the one thing people consistently say about BCO. And it's not just me, it's it's the whole community. I suppose in a sense I've created that culture. But the whole community and they say it's because here we feel like we're treated with dignity and that we're humans. And we don't have... Volunteers with name tags. Nobody has a name tag here. So nobody has that sense of I'm the volunteer, you're the participant. People actually have to ask and get to know.
0: What tends to make its way into the worship services that you conduct? I'm not sure if you actually preach as well, if you conduct sermons. What tends to make its way into, you know, specifically for those people that you are mostly there to support those living with mental illness?
1: Like I said, originally there was never meant to be a church. Service with this, and people were saying to the minister, um, where's your church? And she said, Well, I don't have one. And they're like, Oh, so you're not a real minister, they've they've sent us a dud minister, and she's like, No, 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 I am. <laughs> I'm ordained to the church, but um, and they're like, Um, well, can you can you do a church for us? and she's like, Oh, okay. So it never came from a sense of we're going to create church and make people go to church, it really was about um an expression of the church which is about being in solidarity with people who are on the margins and sitting with them and embodying the presence of God um in that space and helping people to name um God's presence in those places. So she said, all right, well if we're going to have a church, what does church mean for you? And they said, okay, we well we have to have a candle and we have to have God's food, which is the communion. Um, We have to have the Bible, the book. And you have to wear the angel's dress, which is the Alp. And we have to have a bell so we can ring it and tell everyone when it's on. <laughs> um, so we don't do a bell. <laughs> well, I suppose the bell now is my text message reminding them <laughs> the church churches on this Sunday. So it's really interesting that I often think some of the churches these days are wanting to... A less traditional, insert. like so, our service—it's a weird mix. It's traditional, but it's not traditional. So mm-hmm. I do wear the alb, because for them, it's important that church is church. Like I can't—they mm-hmm. want that sense of they're coming to something that's sacred and other mm-hmm. to the crap of their lives. So they—they're wanting, they want the sense of something sacred, even though they know that God can be found elsewhere. They want to know they're coming to God's house, and they're wanting to know they're getting God's food. So when people are, have a lot of trauma in their life and a lot of isolation, a lot of loneliness, they need a transcendent God who, yes, can be found incarnated, but they they, they need the otherness as well and to hear the profoundness of that, that otherness loving us so much that it would come to be present with us. So I do the hour, but I do the communion, and we have singing. I do a reflection. It's usually about five five minutes, not too long. Mm-hmm. And I always explain things. So I never assume anybody knows anything. And then it's really important. Ritual is really important, I think. And interestingly, people come to my service who go to other churches um, in the morning and they, all, they always say, we love your service. Because I always make sure that I'm aware of language. You know, language can actually really exclude people. So people's literacy mightn't be particularly good. Um, uh, Attention spans. So you've got to make sure that there's engagement um, with things. And I always try to do a ritual that reflects the the message of the sermon. So, for example, we had, you know, I was doing the woman at the well a while back. Mm -hmm. And so I got the baptismal font and I had blue material coming out of it and then I had a bowl of water on the top and and then I got and then I had a jug beside it and I talked about the living water and people came and drank the water as a prayer. and we talked about um, the whole the, that whole thing of the living water. and um you know one time I did a story about touching the hem of Jesus's cloak and so I had a white material and people came up and pinned their prayers to the edge of the cloak sometimes I use rocks as a prayer of lament and then we always have lighting of candles for prayers for others so people come forward and light their own candles as their prayers and people love to do that
0: you put a lot of energy into your work and it goes without saying it's a busy busy service um how does that involvement impact on on your life
1: it is very big and like I said from post-covid we thought we, you know, we started to open our groups up again and then we've got all of this big emergency relief stuff on top. Um, but, you know, now at least I've got a few workers, which is helpful. Um, it is it is big and it does take up a big chunk. And, you know, like the last two weekends I've worked uh, because, you know, the other thing is, you know, you, you, you have to do that. It's a bit like fundraising or a you've got to go and thank the churches that support so on Sundays you've got to go and visit them and somebody had a big delivery of a donation on Saturday and so we spent all day unpacking 400 grocery bags so um, my children um, are really good kids and um, you know sometimes at night I just have to go and deal with something take somebody to a hospital or drop food to somebody or there's something and you um, you know sometimes i say to my kids you know i can't sit and read a story with you tonight i've got this happening and they're always like no no you go that's okay they need it you know like my, my family are incredibly supportive and in fact the kids often have been engaged in here and during covid my eldest daughter actually came down and volunteered during her vce during year 11 and 12 so she's she and she helps do our social media stuff and so they're really good really good kids in the sense that they um support what I do. And I uh, and it's it just ebbs and flows. You just got to make sure, like I always make sure what we did in a rhythm here of I couldn't go all year. So I said, right, we're just going to work the groups and that on term basis. And then we have the school holiday groups stop. And that gave me a chance to actually catch up here at work, tidy up, catch up on admin and then catch up with my kids because I would overwork at times. So then it was a bit of, you know, so I've managed to try and find a rhythm and I always take my holidays. I just don't think there's, I'm no good to anybody if I'm totally frazzled. So we always have January January off and I turn my phone off. You know, you can't, I've been around this long enough to know that, you know, people will die. Yes, you do what you can, whatever, but that's the reality of life. Things happen. Sometimes people take their own lives, you know, you can't, I can't go and sit with them every single night and expect that that's going to, you know, you do what you can, but at the end of the day, you have to have those really good boundaries. And I suppose, you know, maybe that's why I've lasted 30 odd years in doing this. One guy in the Remy house actually said to someone recently, oh, she must be new at this. And they said to her, no, she's been around a long time. And he's like, no, no, she can't be. She must be really new to this stuff. And they're like, what makes you say that? And he said, oh, because she's um so warm and compassionate. <laughs> <laughs> i think that's the reality some people get really jaded but i just genuinely love hanging out with these guys like i just but i people are mysteries to be enjoyed not problems to be solved
0: absolutely
1: so natalie what comes next for you and bco and programs like it i still feel very strong about being here with this ministry, we still have a lot, a lot of things happening, and and really don't feel anywhere near finished. My kids have told me I'm not allowed to finish because they're at high school down the road, and it's <laughs> kind of like um, I don't have much choice. But I don't feel uh, I feel um, it's, it's good. It's where I'm meant to be. I think. You know the church is changing, um, and in a real a real time of transition. And the difficulty for for ministries like BCO is that mission in the church really is an afterthought. Um, I hate to say that, but that's my experience. My experience in all churches, not just in the Uniting Church, is that mission will be the first thing that will go when the money dries up, and that's where we're at now. I think there's there's not a lot of. It does tend to be congregational centric. And there's a lot of resources caught up in congregations where we continue to fund full-time ministers to 20 people. And yet I have 400-odd people that I support and care for and there's one me and one part-time worker. And yet um, and we've got no real certainty about the future and and you know what the sad thing is is that we have 77 volunteers of which a large proportion of them are not connected to the church we have boys that come from trinity grammar every week engaging with people and they wouldn't normally but also engaging with the church you know and one of the things a lot of and we have enormous amount of community support enormous amount of support from other organizations and from schools and um you know we've got a queue. The Q scouts are coming to cook in a couple of weeks. We've had girls from MLC. We have a lot. So this is actually the face of the church to the broader community, the church, uh, church in action, and that that as a that in a sense, as a congregation, we have this enormous connection, in the broader community, and yet we have to kind of our funding, you know, security isn't secure. And you'd think. You know, as a church, you'd think, well, wouldn't you want to make sure that those places are supported? And I have to say, the local congregations here have been very good in the Uniting Church, um, and have combined to try and continue some support into the future of BCO. So there's local Uniting Churches here that have been pretty good at wanting to make sure that this mission continues. But but my sense is that there's um, uh, we've we've forgotten how important mission is and what the one of the lines in the for good book it talks about how when we when we handed over our missional engagement and our call to mission as the church to the welfare system we lost our connection to the very thing that that gives us our life force and we started to just become a church that only did worship and how much that has formed the church over the last 80 years and shifted us into a focus of just personalised faith, and it all being about worship, uh, and that worship has lost its connection to engagement in the community. And I think that's why the church has gradually, over time, been dying because we have. It, it's become a little club club like in that sense. We've stopped being what the church had been for centuries like the church for centuries had always fed people had always housed people had run hospitals schools you only have to look at the tradition of the church before the welfare system came into being at what the church did but interestingly one of the questions that people always say to me is how is what you do different from a social worker and i have to remind them no it's the other way around the question has to be is how is social work different from what Ministry is because ministry was always about caring for the whole person. The church always did um, social work. Mm-hmm. It's just that when we handed that stuff over and the welfare state came into being, that's the, that's when social work came into being. It's a it's a it's a recent profession. Yeah, the church always did that stuff, and we've forgotten that in our memory. And I think because of that, we've lost our true identity is what it means to be the faith community. Do
0: you have hope that with the volunteers that you've, uh, as you say, you've got the boys from Trinity Grammar and and other places coming down, um, do you have hope that they're in their own way going to be continuing the Church in Action legacy that you're helping to put out there?
1: So what's interesting is a lot of people are actually Want, my experience is a lot of people want to do things that contribute to making the world a better place. And it's about giving people that avenue through which to do that. For some of them, they might name it as being some sort of connection with spirituality or a faith perspective. For others, it's just a sense of they feel that that's what's Right so if we if we have any impact upon and you know when i've spoken to the school during the assembly you know i've i've always said to them you know you're going you are going to end up in jobs of positions of power and you have to think about how you use that power in a way that makes the world a better place you know and so it might not always be from a faith perspective but at least from a place of compassion and of recognizing that we we should care for our fellow human beings regardless of of our position in the world yeah my experience is that people will talk a lot about spirituality or some sense of sense of that sort of stuff and that's what inspires them to do what they do but it doesn't necessarily won't necessarily mean an engagement with a traditional sense of of a of a religion in that sense yeah But I think we need to be there to help people, to foster that in people. Otherwise, they just hear that voice of individualism that's rampant in our community, which is all about you just look after yourself and that neoliberalistic stuff of you can just make your own pathway and screw the guy next to you. If he hasn't done well for his life, that's his problem. I don't owe him anything. Yeah. Reverend Natalie Dixon-Monu, thank you very much for speaking with us. No trouble. Thank you for having me.
0: You've been listening to Everyday Saints. This episode has been hosted and edited by me, Jananne Taylor, with help from Elspeth Kernabone, Michelle Harris and Maya Pilbro. Graphics by Julian Karajic. If you have a suggestion for our podcasts, please email editor at melbourneanglican.org.au.